0: Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If this podcast has encouraged you in any way, we'd like to ask you to leave a review for Truth Wars on whichever platform you listen on. Now, here's Olin. Father, be with us this morning, uh, Lord. If you want the other people to be here, be able to join, work out those details. Uh, but, Lord, we pray that uh, you would help us to be totally focused. For the next few minutes on you and your word, Lord, your covenant, your grace, your goodness. And I do pray for all of us, Lord, myself included, that we would be intellectually stimulated by you and your word, Lord, that we would grow in loving you with all of our mind. Uh, But I don't pray that is all that would happen, Lord. I pray that we would learn to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, Lord, that our affections would be stirred for you this morning. There would be more... Uh, happiness in you more joy more awe more wonder more worship and lord that would lead to transformation it would lead to real practical holiness uh, and ministry fruit flowing out of our lives for your glory we pray all this in christ's name amen okay before we get started this morning ben perfect timing karen come on in so as we get started you can open your bibles to genesis chapter three okay but while you're turning there i want you to just think about this And maybe you can even jot something down, but you don't have to. At least think in your mind. How do you typically share the gospel? Okay? When you're having a conversation with somebody, Jacob, all these whatever fake crab you've been eating with people sharing the gospel. Or if you're like, well, I don't actually share the gospel that much. Fine. The last time you shared the gospel with somebody, how did you do it? How did you explain the gospel to them, how they can become a Christian? Or if you're like, I hate to say this, it's been a really long time, I don't even remember, hypothetically, if you were walking to your car after this class and somebody came up to you and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? How would you answer the question? Okay? So just just get that in your mind. We're going to refer to it later. Now, we've been looking at the idea of covenants, right? Uh, it starts off in the garden. God made a covenant with Adam. Sometimes it's referred to as the covenant of life. Sometimes as the covenant of works. If you're going through the Westminster Confession of Faith, look at Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7, chapter 19, and then the shorter catechism. Um, question 12, and it talks about, uh, you know, the covenant made with Adam. And sometimes, even in the Westminster Confession, sometimes it refers to it as the covenant of life. Sometimes it refers to it as the covenant of works. So Adam was our representative. When he fell, we fell. We all fell in him. We didn't have a choice. Genesis 3.15, that's the covenant of works. This is the very beginning of of the covenant of grace. We looked at this, okay? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there's the first promise of the coming of Christ and it's really the beginning of the covenant of grace. So in some sense, think about this. In Genesis chapter 3, you're seeing the covenant of works and the covenant of grace set side by side. You understand what I mean? Because Satan's getting cursed. Adam and Eve are even getting cursed. And you can make the argument that Adam and Eve didn't physically die that day, but how did they die that day? Spiritual. They died spiritually. They became dead in their sins. Okay, so you're seeing wrath come down because of the covenant of works. At the exact same time as the wrath is coming down, you're seeing this promise of grace. So you're seeing the covenant of works and the covenant of grace laid side by side with each other in Genesis chapter three. Does that make sense? Okay, um, so that's pretty obvious. I mean, it's just when God curses Adam right? You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna die one day. You're made from dust, you're going back to dust. Does that sound like covenant of grace or covenant of works? works? Covenant of works, okay? When God says, hey, your clothes don't work, but I killed this animal over here and I got some clothes for you, I'm going to give you for free. Sound like the covenant of works or covenant of grace? Okay, side by side. You now, um, We looked at Abraham last week. We won't go back to that, right? Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. And what do we see there? I mean, what, when we were looking at all those passages last week with Abraham, what covenant we were looking at? Covenant of grace. It was all about grace, right? I mean, they, they were going to have this covenant-keeping ceremony. Remember, they took the animals, they killed them all, and he said, you don't even have to walk through, Abe. I'll walk through for both of us. If you break the covenant, it'll be my fault. It'll fault me. Now... Today we're going to look at the Mosaic Covenant. So, is the Mosaic co- in the Mosaic Covenant? Do we see the Covenant of Works or the covenants of Grace? What do you see? Is it both, primarily works? It, it's both. And listen, even good Reformed theologians will kind of disagree on this. And they, they, I just be honest, this one's going to be a little bit confusing. Okay. But the reality is, part of why it's confusing is, in the Mosaic Covenant, you really see, again, kind of what you see in Genesis 3, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace laid side by side. Let me just go ahead and ask you a different question. When Jesus comes in the New Testament, did he come to advance, so to speak, the covenant of works or the covenant of grace? Yeah, in some sense both, right? Because what he said is, hey, Adam couldn't fulfill the covenant of works, but I can, and I will. And that's what enables me to offer you so freely the covenant of grace, because I fixed the covenant of works, so to speak, with you, right? All right. Um, Now, think about this. Uh, Flip over to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. And while you're flipping there, remember what I asked you at the very beginning of class. How do you typically share the gospel? Or what's the last time you share the gospel? How would you do it? Or if you share the gospel today, how do you think you'd do it? Matthew chapter 19. And skip down to verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept, what do I still like? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Have any of you ever shared the gospel like that? Have any of you ever had somebody, I mean, it doesn't happen very often, right? I mean, I have had it a handful of times. I remember literally one time teaching a fraternity Bible study, and this one guy comes in late. I mean, it's like minute 51 of an hour-long Bible study, you know? And you're like, great, why this guy even come? He's just going to be a dis- But literally, we get to the end, and I'm like, well, anybody have any questions? He's like, I have a question. Uh, I'm not a Christian. How do I become a Christian? I mean, I was like, is this a joke? But he was serious <laughs> as a heart attack. And guess what? I did not answer the question this way. I didn't say, just keep the commandments. Right? I mean, first it's like, is Jesus that bad of an evangelist? And it didn't seem like it worked. Right? Because the guy didn't do it. Okay? Flip over to Luke chapter 10. You're like, must have been something weird about this one guy. Jesus, you know, he just, he didn't like rich people or something. So he just was hammering this one dude. Flip over to Luke 10. That's not the real reason. All right? That's a sarcastic answer. Luke chapter 10 going to see something similar. Skip down to verse 25. And behold, a lawyer... Now, this is not a lawyer like a civil lawyer. Back then, Lawyer, they were experts in the law, in the Mosaic law, and studying the Word of God and teaching it, supposedly. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Essentially the same question. He said to him, What's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And you shall... And your neighbor is yourself. And he said to them, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Once again, any of us ever share the gospel like that? Keeps going. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And then that's where you get the parable of the Good Samaritan. Okay? And it's go and do likewise. Now, maybe Jesus understood something about evangelism and about all of life and about salvation and about the covenant of grace that we don't understand. Maybe that's what's going on. Okay, So um, there are places like this in the Bible. Do you have your online folks on there? No, it's not working, but I I don't even know if they want to be. One of the guys didn't answer my phone call, so there might be one out guy out there waiting in space, so sorry. Um, So uh, there are places like this in the Bible that just seem like they're totally out of context. Right? I mean, you read them and you're like, man, I don't get it. I don't know how that works. Because because it, it, if you just take the, let's just say you were stuck in a North Korean prison camp and somebody had smuggled in just a couple pieces of the Bible and all they had smuggled in were those two passages I just read. You would believe in salvation by works, right? You're like, I just, I've got to be perfect. i got to do my best to keep these Ten Commandments, love God, love people, don't commit adultery, all that kind of stuff. Okay? But listen. This was an issue in the New Testament church to some degree. That's part of what was happening in in places like Antioch when Paul had to write the the letter to the church at Galatia to explain the differences. So even today, there are denominations that fall into this. So we're going to try to understand it better today. So let's all go to Galatians chapter 3. That's what we're going to look at. And first, we're going to try to better understand the covenant of works. Okay. So first point, covenant of works, Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, starting verse 10. Galatians 3, starting verse 10. Okay. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Now, I've got the English Standard Version, and it says the first phrase there in verse 10 says, For all who rely on works of the law. Does anybody have a different translation and, and a different phrase at the beginning of verse 10? think it's the new american standard that says as many as are of the works of the law now what do you think paul means by that we're all looking at esv so let's just use the esv for all who rely on works of the law what does he mean by that people who trust in those for their salvation yeah they trust in their works for salvation but put it in the context of the language we've even been using this morning in class what's paul talking about Yeah, people that think they must keep the law to inherit eternal life. Or you could say people that are trying to be saved through the covenant of works. Okay? He says you're under a curse. If you're trying to be saved and be right with God based on the covenant of works, you're under a curse. Because then the standard is perfection. You can't do it. Sinless perfection. Okay? Uh, Let's read the whole verse. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Now he's quoting okay, from the Mosaic covenant, Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. Now remember, this is important. Every, every human being that has ever been born is born under the covenant of works. Because we come from the lineage of Adam. Right? Keep your finger here in uh, Galatians 3. Let's look at a couple of different verses. First, let's flip over to the right, Hebrews chapter 7. Everybody flip over to Hebrews chapter 7. For the folks that are missing it? Well, I'm recording it here. Are you recording it? Okay. Yeah. They're not coming on. Okay, that's great. No problem. Thanks for trying. Hebrews chapter 7, and skip down to verse 9. Now, this is talking about something different. This is not talking about necessarily covenant works as much in covenant grace. This is talking more just about the priesthood. But notice what he's going to say. He's talking about there's really two priesthoods, and which one's greater. Okay, Hebrews chapter 7, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. That's like, man, we are way off track now. What in the world are we talking about? Okay, so a little, little Bible history trivia. Do, do you remember this? There is a story, I think it's in Genesis chapter 14, before the Mosaic Covenant. where Abraham goes off and wins that great battle. I mentioned it briefly last week. And when he comes back, he meets this guy named Melchizedek, who just seems to come out of nowhere. the, the, The king of peace. And he pays tribute to him. He pays tithes to him. Now, hundreds of years later, you have the Mosaic Covenant. And part of the Mosaic Law is there's going to be a priesthood, right, that comes out of Levi, the Levitical priesthood. But then, many, many years later the author of Hebrews is saying, well, which priesthood is better? Because there's actually two. There's this Melchizedek priesthood that we don't get much information on. And there's Levitical priesthood we get a ton of information on. He says, but the Melchizedek priesthood is better. Why? Because technically, Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek, which makes Melchizedek the greater. Because uh, Levi is like a great-great-grandson of Abraham who actually paid the tithes. Does that make sense? So the, the point is this. When Adam sinned thousands of years ago, it's just the same as if all of us were in Adam sinning at the same time. We're guilty. Right? Romans 5. Romans 5 says this in the most clear way. Romans chapter 5. <clears throat> Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. <laughs> Verse 13, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, meaning the Mosaic law, but sin is not counted where there is no law. So it's like, how how could you hold all these people guilty? Why were all these people dying when they didn't have a written law they were sinning against? Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Part of what he is saying there, that's another really hard, confusing passage, but part of what he's saying is, listen, how was God just to kill all those people, make them die for sins they were doing that they didn't technically, know, they didn't have a written code. It's like Adam had a real clear code, right? Don't eat from that tree. And Adam broke it. And so when a human being dies, why are we under the curse of death? It's because of our own sins, yes, but it's more than that. It's also because of the one sin of Adam. Make sense? We all fell in him. He's our federal ed representative. So back to Galatians. If at any point y'all have a question or uh, an insight you want to share, feel free to interrupt, speak up. Back to Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, verse 11. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law for (laughs) the righteous shall live by faith. Once again, we talked about this last week. He goes back and quotes from the Old Testament. Remember, when Paul is writing Galatians, there is no New Testament. (laughs) What were they doing? They were expositing the Old Testament. He's saying, so, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14, or is it verse 4? Yeah, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4 says, the righteous people, they live by faith. How do you really live? How do you really survive? How do you really get blessed by God and life? By faith. That was in the Old Testament. It wasn't as clear. Remember, the lights were off, but it was still true. He's saying it's obvious. Verse 12, but the law is not of faith, rather... The one who does them shall live by them. If you want to try to be saved by law, you can't say it's half law, half faith, because once you go law, it's got to be all law. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Okay, so listen. He says, guys, Jesus lived under the law, under the covenant of works, and Jesus fulfilled it, and yet Jesus died, because what the law prescribes for lawbreakers is a curse, is wrath, and when Jesus was hung on a tree, that was an Old Testament law way to say this person is cursed, this person is cut off, this person is far from God. Jesus didn't deserve that. We do. He fulfilled the covenant of works for us. Now, in all of my experience in evangelism and spiritual conversations, I have never met anybody. I'm not saying they're not out there, but I've personally never met anybody that says, I believe that I'm 100% saved by my own goodness and good works. It's usually something more like this. Well, of course you have to believe in God. Of course you have to have faith. But then you also have to have a lot of good works. Right? It's, It's the faith plus works. I heard a Mormon person, you know, which... They have lots of problems, but they, they believe in salvation by works at the end of the day. And, and, and here was an illustration a Mormon guy gave one time. He said, imagine that you're a little kid, and you want to buy a bicycle, and the bicycle costs $100, and you don't have hardly any money, and your parents are so gracious and loving, they're going to give you almost all the money, but they want you to contribute some. So they give you $99.75, but you've got to put in your $0.25 cent to get the bike. Right? Faith plus works gets you to hell, based off what Paul says. That's how the covenant of works works. So, second point, covenant of grace, which we've already started looking at, okay? Notice what he says. He's, he's making these quotes from the Mosaic Law, how that works. But then he says, why did Christ have to die is so we can get the blessings of Abraham, which is the covenant of grace. And well, how do we get it? We get it by faith. That's verse 14. Look at verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, he, he knows this is confusing, so he's like, let me try to give an example to make it clear. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. So again, in modern day life, when we think about a covenant, what's the main thing we think about? Marriage, right? Some of y'all, you're engaged, right? Okay. This is not the way you do it. I mean, I'm I'm against prenups, okay? But let's just hypothetically say for the moment we were for prenups in this class. Don't get married. Don't say I do in front of the preacher and God and everybody and then go sign the document, turn it into the courthouse, and then 30 days later be like, I'd like to get a prenup. Like, it don't work that way. Too late. You can't change the covenant after it's already been laid down. Right? And so what Paul is saying here is, guys, the Abrahamic grace-filled covenant came before the Mosaic covenant. So the Mosaic covenant can't do anything to change the Abrahamic covenant it can't amend it doesn't work that way look at verse 16 now the promises were made to abraham and to his offspring it does not say and to offsprings referring to many but referring to one and to your offspring who is christ so what he's saying is even when god was saying i'm going to be a blessing to you and to your offspring the real point was i'm really making this covenant with christ who's going to be the fulfiller Verse 17, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Right? There were no works involved in the Abrahamic covenant. Just, I am going to be your God. You are going to be my people. And Abraham, remember Genesis chapter 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Faith alone. That's the covenant. Grace in Abraham, it doesn't get changed. Okay, so, why then? Why in the Mosaic Covenant, okay, you can do this, okay? Uh, Keep your finger here, we're coming right back. But flip back to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2, okay, which is where we get introduced to Moses and Exodus chapter 2, and go down to verse 24. Remember, this is when the Israelites are in slavery, and they're groaning, and they're miserable, and it's been terrible. Exodus chapter 2, verse 24, last verse of the chapter. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So everything that God did with Moses and the Mosaic covenant and all that was why? In light of the Abrahamic covenant. So even the Mosaic covenant is like an addendum under the Abrahamic covenant. It doesn't doesn't change it. Okay, one commentator said this: He's reaffirming, he's heightening, and he's expanding and he's deepening the covenant they made with Abraham. Right? We don't get a we don't get a lot of specifics in the covenant made with Abraham. In the Mosaic covenant, we're we'll gonna get all kinds of specifics. Okay, back to the New Testament. Let's actually go to Romans. Chapter 10. Remember, somebody once said, and I think it's right, you know, Paul wrote Galatians when he was younger and angrier and in a hurry. And then when he was older and wiser and maybe not in a bad mood, he wrote Romans. There's nothing wrong with Galatians, right? Galatians is great. Sometimes it's clear. But then sometimes Romans is clearer. Because he's had more time to think on it and say, let me say that a little bit better. Let me say that a little bit more clearer. Okay? Romans chapter 10, and look at verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on law. On the law, you could call that the covenant of works. That the person who does the commandment shall live by them. Right? That sounds like what we read in Galatians 3. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, Or, who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Again, these quotes, do not say in your heart who will ascend heaven, that's coming from the Old Testament. That's coming from Deuteronomy. Okay, this is coming from the Mosaic Covenant. So Moses was saying things about how to be saved by grace. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we can proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. With the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved, okay? For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. So even in the Old Testament, if you heard the gracious promises of God and you trusted them about a coming Messiah, you got saved. Um, Now, there's the mosaic I mean the covenant of grace the covenant of law they're set side by side now here's our third point why did you do it this way god why did you even give us the mosaic law and covenant cuz it just let's just be honest it feels like it makes things more confusing doesn't it right if it had gone from adam to abraham then you could have thrown david in there and then jesus and it's like it's grace, it's grace, it's grace, it's grace. Why did you bring back all this mosaic law stuff and have to like re-emphasize the covenant of works? Almost like you were trying to highlight it more than you were highlighting the covenant of grace. Why in the world did you do this? You now, part of what makes Paul such a great author is he anticipates the arguments or the questions. Of his audience. So go back to Galatians 3 and let's look at how he responds to this. And hey guys, am I the only one? Have, have you never been studying a passage like this? Maybe even one of these passages we're talking about and just be like, this is confusing. And why'd you have to make it so dadgum confusing, God? We're out there trying to explain it to teenagers and they ask us some of these questions and we're like, I don't know. And even if I think I know, to try to explain it to you right now in this smoothie king seems impossible, right? Why would you do it this way, God? Galatians chapter 3, look at verse 19. Why then the law? Right? Why then the Mosaic law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one. But God is one. Don't get hung up on that, okay? Part of what that's saying is the Mosaic Uh, covenant was not as good because there were angels involved in giving it to Moses and the Abrahamic covenant is better because there were no angels involved there. It was more direct. Okay, But it's like, I still don't know that you've helped me very much, Paul. So he's going to kind of say the same thing. Verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Did the Mosaic covenant do something to kind of contradict and make null and void the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Okay, right? He's saying, listen, guys, if there was any way for a human being to be saved by law-keeping, God would have done that. God didn't want to have, to have His own son killed. If there was a different way, He would have done it. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Do you see what he's saying there? God wanted to make it 100% brutally obvious to all of us that the only way that anybody can ever get saved is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, not by works. Part of why he overwhelmed them in the Old Testament with 600-plus laws was to say, you can't do it. You can't do it to bring us to the end of ourselves. Okay. Now flip over to Romans chapter 7. We're going to look for just a minute at part of Paul's testimony. Romans chapter 7 and how Paul experienced this. Now I'm flipping there. Let me read a quote from the marrow of modern divinity. And just out of curiosity, you know, for the fourth book I gave you an option. Did anybody choose the marrow? I didn't think so. It's probably a good choice. All right, so listen to this quote so you get a little bit of it. This is so good. Their fallen Adam was almost forgotten. In that long course of time between Adam and Moses, men had forgotten what sin was. So, although God had made a promise of blessing to Abraham, yet these people at this time were proud and secure and heedless of their estate. They would not own sin nor charge themselves with it. And so, by consequence, they found no need of pleading the promises made to Abraham. Do you understand what he's saying? And guys, don't we see this happening in our own age? You, try to, you ever try to share the gospel with somebody and they're like, I don't need a savior. Or they're like, yeah, yeah, I know Jesus died on the cross for my sins, blah, 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 whatever. Yeah, I believe that. I'm good. I'm, I'm not doing that. What are you talking about? I'm not really a, that big of a sinner compared to most people. They take it for granted. They're not broken. They're not humbled. They don't have a real sense of desperation. I need Christ. Okay. Um, keep your faith in Romans 7. I promise we're coming right back. Okay. But but flip over to, let's just look at a couple places where you see this happening. Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. Good old John the Baptist. Love this. Matthew chapter 3, verse 9. You remember, some of the Pharisees and Sadducees wanted to come get baptized. They're kind of like, everybody's doing it. Must be cool. We want to be popular. You know, we want to stay spiritual leaders. If this is where the revival's happening, we better go out there and look at John the Baptist. He was such a seeker-sensitive guy, okay? Let's just read the whole thing because I love it. So, so uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. You see what he's saying? He knew they were going to say, oh, oh, we're Jews, man. We got pure blood. We can trace it all the way back to Father Abraham. He says, I don't care. That didn't mean anything when it comes to your salvation, your ethnic bloodline. But they were putting their hope in, they were presuming upon the grace of God. Okay, John chapter 8, you're going to see something really similar. John chapter 8, verse 39. Okay, you're like, well, that's John the Baptist. He's kind of an Old Testament prophet, he's kind of mean. All right, here's Jesus, the New Testament prophet. Love incarnate. John chapter 8, verse 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. See their boast? We're Jews. We get a get-out-of-jail-free card. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. Just, just pause and think about what we talked about last week. That, that verse is full. Part of what he's saying is, it doesn't matter physically if you're a child of Abraham. It matters spiritually if you're a child of Abraham. And what does it mean to be spiritually a child of Abraham? It means you do the same thing he did, which is what? You trust God. You believe God. You rest in God by faith. And he's saying, Pharisees, Abraham believed in me. In a real dark, shadowy way, he didn't fully get it, but Abraham believed in me. If you really are his children spiritually, you'd be believing in me. And the fact that you're rejecting me shows... You might be physically a son of Abraham, but you're not spiritually. Don't presume. Okay? Just cuz you grow up in America and you go to a big church and your daddy's a preacher and your mom sings in the choir and your uncle plays the piano or whatever, you can put as your spiritual pedigree, it doesn't matter. I think I heard Billy Graham say one time, God has no spiritual grandchildren. And I first heard that, I was like, that's weird. I don't know what that means. I had to think about it for a second. But you get the point? Like, you have to have a personal faith in Christ. And then you become adopted into his family as one of his direct children. It's not like, well, my daddy believed, and he believed, like, super strong. Like, he believed, like, quadruple strong. God, so can't I get on his faith? Doesn't work that way. No grandchildren. All right, Romans 7. Let's look at part of Paul's conversion. Now, remember what we know about Paul. Right? From reading the book of Acts, from Philippians 3 where he shared, right? He was the Pharisee of Pharisees, the Jew of Jews of the tribe of Benjamin, as to the external law, faultless, full of zeal, advancing beyond everybody else his age. Genius. Persecuting the church because he thought they were a crazy guy. He was all in doing all the stuff. He was the best of the best. Romans chapter 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Of course it's not sin. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Now, remember, we talked about this maybe in the first week. To some degree, the law is written on everybody's heart. Right? Romans 1 talks about that. But it's not super clear. It's pretty vague. You say, well, like what? If the law had not said, you shall not covet. Excuse me, I, I skipped. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Right? I think most people, you think about the most pagan person living in the jungles of Papua New Guinea, running around in a loincloth. I think, I think the image of God is on them enough that they know murder's wrong. And how do you know? Because if somebody murders their family, they're going to get mad about it. They might be fine to murder other people, but nobody better murder one of my friends. They know that murder's wrong. But if we could get a translator in to talk to them, we'd say, do you know that coveting is wrong? They'd be like, what? I mean, there's even a lot of Christians, right? I mean, they they've probably memorized the Ten Commandments at some point. They're like, do you really understand that it's sin to covet, to want something too much? Even a good thing? Like, whoa. So you see what Paul's saying? I'm this little legalistic Pharisee growing up, doing everything right. I knew the Word of God. He probably had the first five books, you know, the Pentateuch, memorized. But he said, I didn't really get this whole coveting thing. And if I never read it, the mosaic law, I wouldn't have understood it. Look what's going to happen. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of coveting. It's like, once I started really meditating on the commandment, don't covet, don't covet, don't covet, it's like, oh my goodness. I start coveting all the time. I see that I'm already coveting a ton, and now I'm coveting even more. Right? It's like if you you know if you're struggling with lust, and you're like, whatever you do, don't lust today. It's like you're probably going to be thinking about it more. Right? Whatever you do, don't think about the pink elephant. Now everybody's thinking about pink elephant. It doesn't help. John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress has this great illustration. I'm gonna give half of it to you now, and I'll give the other half in just a second. And it's when it's early in the books when uh, Pilgrim is at the Interpreter's house. And he goes in, and there's this one room, and it's just covered in dust. And there's a man in the room, okay? And the room represents somebody's heart. And the dust represents sin. And the broom represents the law. And when the man tries to use the law to get all the dust out of the room, anybody remember this, what happens? The dust just gets stirred up. It's like it gets worse. Now, technically, did the law put any new dust into the room? I mean, did the law put any new sin in your heart? No. No. It just stirred it up and exposed it. It just made it angry. Right? I mean, let's don't have a show of hands on this, but have there ever been any of us that, like, you come into a place and you see a sign that says, no parking, and you're like, I'm parking right there. You can't tell me what to do. There is a rebellion deep in human beings' heart. You know? Okay. Last phrase of verse 8. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. Sin's in there, but it's dormant. It's like it's not moving. It's like it's not alive. I was once alive apart from the law. Now, what in the world does that mean? Almost certainly. What it means is he was living and he knew that he, he read the law. He intellectually understood the law, but the law hadn't come home and convicted him, so he felt great about himself. He felt like he was alive. He felt like he was doing everything right. He felt very self righteous. He felt very affirmed. Sin came alive and I died. Once all that coveting got stirred up in my heart, I started to get convicted like crazy. I realized how sinful I was. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, right? Because if you're trying to be saved through the Mosaic law, through the Mosaic covenant, through the works of the law, you say, I've got to keep all the Ten Commandments. I'm trying my best. But then really, the more I try, the more I realize I can't do it, the more I'm convicted, the more I feel like I'm spiritually dead inside. Verse 11. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Okay. Verse 13. Did that which is good then, meaning the law, bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin. There's the key phrase. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Okay, That last sentence in verse 13 is maybe the most important of everything we've read this morning. Why did God do it this way? that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. for us to see how wicked we really are. Now, now you got to wrestle, and this is kind of a side note guys, but, but I think it's helpful to wrestle with. When exactly did this happen in Paul's life? And we don't know for sure. But anybody want to take a guess? think the best understanding remember he's the best of the best with all the Jews and the Pharisees right and you remember when Stephen the newly appointed deacon started going out and doing a lot of evangelism in the synagogues and preaching and one of the things it said is nobody could refute him nobody could confound him the longest sermon in the book of Acts is Stephen's it's like it's off the top of his head and it's like he's just preaching the whole Old Testament and we know that Saul was there Salt of Tarsus. And and I think that a, a, a very good guess and probably the right understanding is that young Paul is standing there and he's been the best of the best, and as Stephen is preaching, he realizes this guy's better than me. This guy knows the word better than me. And he's right. And I'm wrong. And there's only two ways you respond to that. You either humble yourself and repent, or you kill the competition. And that coveting rose up in his heart, and it literally led to murder. And then the conviction later, right? That's a dangerous cocktail. The guilt of the murder plus the still coveting. Why can't I understand it? Now, Matthew Henry says, listen, if we had a magnifying glass, Connor's shirt looks very white this morning, but if we had some kind of magnifying glass you or some kind of special light and we put it on him... And then we saw these spots once we got closer. It's not the magnifying glass's fault. The spots were already there. The magnifying glass just exposes the spots, right? Okay. I mean, I don't know how many of you are familiar with St. Augustine. Part of his testimony was there were some apples, I think, in an orchard that were not his. And he stole them. And later he said, why did I steal them? I wasn't hungry. And I'm not poor. I just wanted to break the law and expose what was in his heart. Okay, Listen to Augustine. The law bids us, as we try to fulfill its requirements and become wearied in our weakness under it, to know how to ask for the help of grace. You're trying to save yourself. You're trying to work. You're trying to be perfect. And you're like, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. I've got to beg for grace. Martin Luther says it a little bit more short and easy to remember. God must damn you before he can save you. You have to have a sense of your brokenness and condemnation before a holy and just God before you'll beg for the kind of mercy you need. The first, this is Luther again, the first point of the law isn't to make someone better, but worse. Right? Not to literally make you worse, but to expose how bad you really are and you just didn't know it. Luther again. It's necessary that he should be humbled by the law, So I love this phrase, so that this beast, what's the beast? The presumption of righteousness might be slain. Otherwise, you cannot obtain eternal life. All of us have this beast inside of us. This presumption, I'm pretty good. Okay, Uh, Emil Bruner. To stand on the rim of the abyss, to despair utterly of ever crossing over, this is the indispensable anti-chamber of faith. We're all familiar with the bridge diagram, right? Right? We draw the little cute little picture, but the cute little picture is actually supposed to represent like the Grand Canyon, or something even bigger, like an eternal gap. And what this guy's saying is, until you really get to the edge of that gap and you realize there's no chance. I have no chance of swimming across the Pacific Ocean by myself. But when you get there in that despair, that's really the step right before faith. Richard Sibbs: men, for the most part, are not lost enough in their own feeling for a Savior. A holy despair in ourselves is the ground of hope. John Gerstner, nothing stands between God and the sinner but his damnable good works. That's what really blocks us. John Stott, the purpose of the law, I love this phrase too, was to lift the lid off of man's respectability and disclose what he really is underneath, the law must still be allowed to do its God-given duty to show us you're not as near as respectable as we think we are. And John Piper, it's not that the bar is too high for people to become Christians, it's that it's too low. It's not like, i got to climb so high. It's like, no, no, you just got to humble yourself all the way down in the dirt. And people don't want to do that. Okay. Romans chapter 5. We will end here, Romans chapter 5. And uh, skip down to verse 20. But the law came in to increase the trespass. Right? To make it more obvious. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Right? Go back to the Bunyan illustration. Y'all remember how it ends? A man comes in with a little bucket of water and the water represents grace. And it just sprinkles a little grace around the whole room, the heart, on all the dust of sin. So then it kind of lowers it. So then when you use the broom of the law, it actually works. Right? Then when you've got grace in your heart and you say, don't covet, it's actually effective. Not perfectly, but somewhat, right? And you can start to move those sins out of your heart. Listen, this is not about, well, I'm just a big sinner and I just need to just be honest about how big of a sinner I am. You no. Know, I'm a big sinner, I get grace, and now by God's grace, I should be growing into becoming at least a little saint. (laughs) Probably won't ever be a big saint in this life, but by his grace, I'm moving in that direction. Okay. Now, most of us, we already know these facts, but I think if we're really honest with ourselves, we don't feel the reality of them. Because we're like, man, I got saved years ago. I remember going through some crisis like that, but it's like, now I am a Christian. I'm doing great. (laughs) I mean, we can oftentimes say with our mouth, I'm saved by faith alone. I know that it's not by works, but sometimes when we're maybe comparing ourselves to other Christians, it's easy to slip back into a comparison game that wants to go back to my presumption of righteousness, but I'm a little bit better than him. Maybe I'm not better than her yet, but I'm going to work hard. I'm going to try to get there. Okay. Um, Let's just hypothetically say that I struggle with the sin of anger sometimes. You know, when my kids were younger, it was mostly directed at them. And I, I mean, I wish I was making this up, but I'm not. There'd be times me and one of my sons would have an argument. You know, and it would voices would get raised, and afterwards, my wife, who's amazing, would be saying, "You know, would you like me to give you a little feedback?" And I'd be like, "Not really, but you know, but go ahead. I know I need it." And she would say something. And literally, I said this. And this this is when I was like, you know, in my 30s. I'm like a grown man, arguing with like a middle school boy. And I'd say, yeah, well, he started it. I mean, just think about the stupidity of that statement. (laughs) Right? What am I doing? What am I doing in that moment? Am I trying to say, I'm going to get to heaven by my works? No. But I am trying to say, I will build my record of righteousness at the human level, my reputation on my righteousness. See what I'm doing? It's going to make me feel better about myself to try to hang on to some of my respectability. I'm not that bad. I mean, I've, by God's grace, I've gotten a lot better with my kids. Partially, they've gotten older and more mature. Maybe I have a little bit too, okay? But I tell you what, I still see it come out sometimes in driving. You ever do this, right? Somebody cuts you off and you start screaming, right? And you're angry. And then you get, you're like, I cut somebody like that off yesterday. You know? I have no right to be mad at this person. I need to lay that down. There's, there is there's still a sinful part of us, guys, that's desperate to hang on to our own self-righteousness, dignity, and not be ruthlessly honest about our indwelling sin. Now, Tim Keller has this great quote where he says, listen, if to any degree you, again, not mentally, not academically, but functionally, you think about your righteousness being based on, your standing." being based on your own good works, it will always sour you. It will always mess you up. Because if you do look around the room and you think you're doing better than everybody, and at some level, you get the credit, what's that going to do to your attitude? You're going to be smug. You're going to be arrogant. You're going to be kind of condescending, kind of look down on people. Right? We probably all know somebody like this. Oh, maybe we've been people like that. Hopefully we're not. Or... If, again, you're building your functional sense of right standing with God on your own works, and you're doing terrible, you're having the worst week or the worst month of your life, then what's your attitude going to be like? Yeah, despair. I'm a failure. I'm cast off. I'm a loser. There's no hope for me. Salvation, by grace alone, frees us from both these errors. Okay? problem is practically speaking we don't really 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 believe that at heart level we all had the potential to be just as evil as Hitler and yet God just had mercy on me and protected me from ever becoming that person but if he left me to myself and even if he took my his grace away from me right now I'd start moving directly in that direction make sense let me give me a couple of illustrations that I think will help bring this home. Imagine if you and a friend are walking down the beach and, uh, you know, there's a little seashell and you cut your pinky toe on the seashell. And you're like, ah, that hurts. i got to cut on my pinky toe. And we're walking in the water, you know, salt water, sand, pink. And your friend says, you know what, I just always happen to carry a Band-Aid in my bathing suit. Kind of weird, I don't know why. You'd be like, thank you, friend. I'm going to use some of this salt water, wash out my pinky toe cut. Put the Band-Aid on, wrap it securely. What sense of gratitude might you feel to your friend? You'd be like, thank you very much. Maybe a fist bump, maybe a handshake, maybe even a side hug, right? Thank you. You're a good friend. You're a weird friend. I don't know why you carry a Band-Aid in your bathing suit, but I'm glad you do, and you move on. But imagine if you're walking down the beach and a tsunami comes and sucks you out to sea and you're drowning, and the last thing as you remember going down is your friend coming down, pulling you out of the water, dragging you to the beach, giving you mouth-to-mouth, resuscitating you. I mean, what level of affection are you going to feel for such a friend? And guys, so many times for people like us that have grown up in the Southeast and we've grown up in good churches and good families, we can lose the shock and the awe that we're supposed to have for grace, how radical it is. And kind of just get bored with it. And it's helpful for us to go back to the law sometimes to be humble. Because, I know you've heard this before, but it's so helpful to remember, if you have a small view of your sin, and I don't just mean your sin back then, I mean your ongoing sin today. If you have a small view of your sin, by consequence, you will have a small view of your Savior. Functionally, practically. You'll have little gratitude. Do you remember when... It's Luke chapter 7. We won't go look at it for time's sake. But do you remember Jesus goes to this lunch at his Pharisee's house and a woman that was a known sinner, almost certainly a prostitute, comes in and is washing Jesus' feet with her hair and her tears and this oil. And the Pharisee is thinking to himself, if he was really a prophet, he knew what kind of woman this was, he wouldn't let this woman touch him. And Jesus says, Simon, I got a story for you. There was a guy that lent money to two different people. One guy lent 50 bucks. The other lent 500 Neither could pay. The lender canceled both their debts. Which one will love the man more? I suppose the one who is forgiven the greater debt. And Jesus says, this woman has been forgiven much, therefore she loves much. But I came in your house, you didn't kiss me, you didn't wash my feet, you didn't do anything. You didn't just do normal signs of affection. Now, lest we miss the point of the story. Was Jesus saying, well, Simon, you're just such a great guy. You don't have much sin to be forgiven. That's why you don't love me much. But this whore over here, she's so bad, that's why she loves me so much. Not the point of the story. It is this, that she had such a scandalous life that she was very aware of the depth of her depravity. And so the fact that this Savior would love her blew her away. And her whole life, in a sense, was an outpouring of love and adoration to such a Savior, that he was willing to die for her. And the Pharisee, it's not that he didn't have a lot of big, bad sin. He had all sorts of arrogant self-righteousness that God hates. But he refused to see it as sin or as sin of any consequence. So I bring it all back to us when we we'll be done. Probably most of us don't have as much scandalous sin in our lives externally as that prostitute did. And that's a good thing. I'm certainly not saying go get some more scandalous sin so you can have a better worship experience on Sunday morning. What I'm saying to myself and to all of us is this. We need to learn to see the seemingly small, white-collar domesticated sins like coveting, unforgiveness, greed, lust, anger. It's true wickedness that God really hates, that really breaks his heart, that really should damn us to hell. And yet, that's what Christ freed us from. And it ought to humble us out of all of our self-righteousness and then motivate us to a real grace-filled life of obedience. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, uh, your ways are not our ways. Sometimes at first glance, it's hard to understand. But the more that we dig into your word, your heart, your character, the more we are humbled, the more we are in awe, the more by the grace of Christ uh, we can be sanctified and have joyous worship. Would you make us into the men and the women you want us to be? who live day after day in this humble sense of awe and gratitude and worship and obedience by grace. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If you have any questions for Olin, please email him at olin.stubbs at campusoutreach.org.